It is a epic precedent overturning decision. It's framed around speech, when in reality, the precedents were about conduct. What civil rights are about are about conduct, you know, like restaurants, denying service. People should be in the streets about this instead of just going, oh, uh, well, gee, this will help the Democrats in 2024. You know, one of the key aspects of fascism is this militant dedication to the restoration of traditional social hierarchy and the tearing up of the old previously normative constitutional rule of law. And that's what we're seeing. Welcome to episode 162 of the Refuse Fascism podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. Refuse Fascism exposes, analyzes, and stands against the very real danger and threat of fascism coming to power in the United States. In today's episode, I'm chatting with my dear friend and fellow member of the Refuse Fascism editorial board, Paul Street, to get into some key rulings from the SCOTUS term that just wrapped up in the Democrats' response to the escalating fascist threat. Thanks to everyone who goes the extra step and rates and reviews the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you appreciate the show and want to help us reach more people who want to refuse fascism, go be a gem, write a review, drop five stars wherever you listen to pods. I really can't tell you what a big difference it makes. Please tell the people out there in podcast land why you listen, and they should too. Subscribe, follow, so you never miss an episode. And of course, keep up all that great commenting, sharing on social media. And thank you to everyone on Patreon for supporting the show for $2 or more a month. Thanks, patrons. Not one yet? Go become one at patreon.com slash refuse fascism. Before we get into it, we've got a lot to cover today. I did want to say just a few things about the Moms for Liberty Summit that is wrapping up today as we record this Sunday morning. Cheers to all who protested, all the historians, educators, and librarians who issued statements in opposition. As we've talked about before on the show, Moms for quote-unquote liberty, aka Moms for Fascism, had their national summit in Philadelphia this week. They trained their Christian fascist stormtroopers to run for school boards and terrorize teachers, students, and the LGBTQ community at large with genocidal aims. For those interested in the who's who of the summit and more background on Moms for Liberty, I highly recommend checking out a Vice article by David Gilbert titled, The GOP is Lining Up to Pay Homage to America's Newest Extremist Group, Moms for Liberty. It's linked in the show notes. Check it out. Moms for Liberty are the maternal shock troops for Christian fascism, playing the same role as mothers of the fatherland, Nazi Germany. The fascist destruction and remaking of public education in the service of a genocidal program is their mission. And this week, they made a bold statement in Philadelphia that Black folks, LGBTQ people, and other oppressed groups will be erased from education and the public record if we do not stop them. And on Friday, they made clear they're moving from school boards to the national playing field, propping up a Trump or DeSantis to seize the White House and hammer in a fascist nightmare where there are no safe spaces. And the question that we all need to be asking is how far are the decent people going to let this go? And before I bring Paul on, I just wanted to share some highlights of what Trump said to 
this rabid group of quote unquote mama bears. First off, let's listen to how they greeted Trump. This was the welcome that he got. It was the loudest applause to any speaker. That was the start. And this went on to him bragging about how he stacked the court. Remember, he was speaking on the same day that affirmative action was killed, the same day that in the name of quote unquote religious liberty, bigots were emboldened, and the same day that students were given a big fuck you as the Supreme Court rolled back debt forgiveness. He bragged about the overturn of Roe and then went on to suggest a series of sweeping education policies that would go far beyond the measures he took while in office, particularly regarding race and LGBTQ issues. And I'm going to read something that is deeply disturbing. So I just want to put that out there. He said, quote, On day one, I will sign an executive order instructing every federal agency to seize the promotion of sex or gender transition at any age. They're not going to do it anymore. I will declare that any hospital or healthcare provider that participates in the chemical or physical mutilation of minor youth no longer meets federal health and safety standards. They will be terminated from receiving federal funds effective immediately. And I will ask Congress to send a bill to my desk prohibiting child sexual mutilation in all 50 states, end quote. In his speech, he talked about signing a new executive order to cut federal funding for any school pushing critical race theory or any discussion of racial, sexual, or political content. He talked about overhauling school discipline and juvenile justice to get, quote unquote, violent monsters out of your children's school classrooms, end quote. He signaled interest in the gutting of the Federal Department of Education, abolishing teachers' tenure, and getting rid of accreditation groups that, quote unquote, have allowed our colleges to become dominated by Marxist maniacs and freaks. And so a lot of people do the whole, it's just talk. Well, this talk is deadly. This talk is deadly. He talked about what he was going to do to our immigrant siblings, to our Muslim siblings, and then he went and did it. Let's not just talk about it being talk. It has real world implications. This Friday, the Supreme Court wrapped up their term, a term that I see as a legal offensive in the fascist onslaught, ending affirmative action in higher education, formalizing the right of business owners to discriminate against LGBTQ people in the name of quote unquote religious liberty, blocking Biden's student debt relief plan, and further crippling the EPA. We talked about that last one in a previous episode. Oh, and next term, they'll hear a case on whether or not domestic abusers can have guns because abortion bans just haven't killed enough women. So there is a lot in these decisions to get into the legal stage of fascist escalation and now the implications of these decisions. With that, I want to welcome back on Paul Street. You know him. You love him. He is a fellow contributing editor of RefuseFascism.org, frequent guest of the show, He's a historian. He's an author. Did I mention he's got a Substack? See the show notes because you're going to want to subscribe. He does audio posts too. So check him out. Welcome, Paul. Glad to be talking with you. Uh, Yeah, I'm doing all right. I wanted to mention something else under the category of it's just talk. Within the last week, Trump was speaking to Ralph Reed's religious coalition, the Freedom and Faith Group, I think it is. It was the week before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's the week before. And I swear to God, He got up and said he's going to change immigration law. (laughs) So no communists 
and Marxists and socialists can be allowed into the country. But then he briefly said, and furthermore, we've got to deal with our own homegrown Marxists and communists and socialists, and they're going to need to be deported. And he will undertake actions to deport. You know, that's fucking fascism. All these people who said, don't get Trump derangement syndrome, don't get crazy about this guy, and don't use the F word and don't talk about fascism. You know? I mean, how fascist is that? I'm really glad you brought that up, Paul. It's a, yeah. it's a perfect example. Let's start by discussing some of these cases and let's start with the killing of affirmative action. So just the basics, students for fair admissions, the president and fellows of Harvard College and students for fair admissions, the University of North Carolina. The Supreme Court decided this Thursday. June 29th, the Supreme Court ruled that the use of affirmative action and admissions programs at two universities was unconstitutional. In the majority decision, Chief Justice John Roberts said the admissions programs could not be reconciled with the, quote, guarantees of the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, end quote. In Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent, She said the decision, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. And quote, what do we need to know, Paul? What what are the implications of this decision? Talk to us about it. It's a horrible decision. You know, there's some parallels with the Dobbs v. Jackson decision last year, the one that got rid of a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. There's a twist in this decision. Roberts, the way he wrote it, he pretends that he's still keeping alive the possibility of race being considered in college admissions via the mechanism of the student essay. But the reality of the decision is very clear. It says flat out that race cannot be considered as a factor in college admissions. It is a epic precedent overturning decision. Dobbs v. Jackson, the precedent that it overturned was Roe v. Wade, 1973. This Roberts decision overturns a few cases, Bakke versus California in 78, Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003, and Fisher versus uh, University of Texas. As recently as 2016, that last decision, which is very interesting, it's very telling about how extreme Donald Trump's impact was on the composition of the court. It's really unusual for the Supreme Court to overturn previous Supreme Court decisions in all their decisions over the many years, less than one in a hundred have overturned court precedent. And usually when you overturn precedent, you are supposed to conduct yourself in accord with what the legal profession calls stare decisis, which is a Latin term that means let the decision stand, the honor precedent, which doesn't mean all past decisions stand. That would be completely and totally absurd, right? We're glad that the Plessy versus Ferguson decision did not stand. We're glad that the Dred Scott decision did not stand. But when you overturn precedent, you're supposed to make some kind of freaking argument about how things have changed, how something fundamentally has changed in such a way as to invalidate that previous decision. And just like in the Dobbs decision, in this affirmative action decision, students for fair admissions, they don't even attempt to do that. As Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, the court does not even attempt to make the extraordinary showing required by stare decisis, and that's for some very good reasons. Nothing changed at all to make women's right to an abortion any less legitimate or tenable in last year 
than it was in 73. Nothing has changed at all to make the case for including race as a factor in college admissions any less legitimate in 2023 than it was in 1978 or 2003 or as recently as 2016. The United States has not miraculously suddenly become a colorblind society where opportunities from birth you know, are equally shared across racial lines. Quite the opposite, if anything, the opportunity structures have gotten worse for Black folks and people of color since 1978. What changed was the freaking composition of the court, the creation of a Christian fascist majority dedicated to the restoration of traditional social hierarchy, gender hierarchy in the case of Dobbs, and racial hierarchy in the case of students for fair admissions. What happened was that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader when the Senate was under Republic fascist control, collaborated to create a 6-3 far-right Christian fascist racist sexist court, including at the very last minute, a woman enrolled in a male supremacist handmaid's cult. You know, there's some differences between the Dobbs decision and, and this decision, but those are some really, really key parallels. What are the implications do you see of this decision in higher education? I think it might be helpful to remind people while affirmative action didn't erase white supremacy, that there wasn't an impact made in access to higher education. And what difference does it make to not have it? One of the differences with the Dobbs decision is the Dobbs decision reaches all the way down into the poorest and blackest parts of, of red state America. It just ups the level of hell for the black working and underclass in states where Dobbs has led to abortion ban. Affirmative actions, I think, never quite went as deep. It's really going to hurt the here in Chicago, the kids, the black kids who graduate from some of the better magnet schools like Walter Payton on the north side and Whitney on the west side, not to mention the black kids from the middle and upper class at elite private schools like the Lab School down in Hyde Park or Francis Park or Latin School. However, we do have some experiments already. California had a referendum. I believe Michigan had a referendum and another state had a referendum against affirmative action. Contrary to Justice Roberts' notion that there's no measurable outcomes from this kind of stuff, those referendums led to precipitous declines in Black admissions to the better public universities in those states and decline in diversity and classroom experience and in who's graduating. And it's a rollback of the very real, if a limited, Black ascendancy into the middle class, also the upper class, thinking of the Obamas, for example. You know, so it's a rollback of a very real civil rights gain achieved by affirmative action. I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about is that through mass struggle and people demanding it, when affirmative action was put into law coming out of the struggles of the 60s and 70s, it was forcing this country's government in some way, yes, a small way, that for centuries, the United States and its institutions discriminated against Black, Latino, and Mm -hmm. other oppressed people. In this rollback, I think it's really important that it's seen as a reinstitution and reinforcement of the most overt white supremacy. And it does so in the name of colorblindness. And yes. it actually offensively cites the Brown v. Board decision, the 14th Amendment, which was won by civil war, including the enlistment of Black soldiers and the end of slavery. And it cites the Fourth Amendment and the Civil Rights Act to propagate this myth 
of color blindness, and it connects with this strange argument that we really can't measure. I mean, one of the creepy things about the previous affirmative action rulings is that they were all premised not on repair or reparation or remediation for centuries of racism, but on this notion that diversity is good for white students, that diversity is good for corporate America, that it would be good for white kids to come out of college with the experience of racial diversity because they're going to have that in the job market and in the corporate sector and all that. And there's always this argument that it couldn't be about remediation or racism because as Roberts claims, and this is a longstanding court claim, you can't really measure the impact of remediation, which is just complete and total and unmitigated bullshit. Of course you can. You know, when you properly fund schools, when you open doors to more admissions, you do get more folks of color coming out and being able to access opportunity. We could do a whole episode on the colorblind constitution and what absolute bullshit that is. I wanted to turn now to more gutting of civil rights. Let's get into the Christian fascist biggest Victory of this term, 303 Creative LLC versus Lennis, a.k.a. Masterpiece Kate Case 2.0. On Friday, June 30th, 6-3 decision from Justice Neil Gorsuch. The court upheld that the First Amendment prohibits Colorado from forcing a website designer to create expressive designs, speaking messages with which the designer disagrees. Tell us a little bit about this. What will this mean in the real world? And what is this opening the door to? You know, this is a really horrible decision with a huge slippery slope about it, and it should not be underestimated. A little footnote to this thing is the premise on which it was based, that this woman, was it Lori Smith, web designer, that she was approached by a gay couple to create a website for their marriage. Apparently, this never even actually happened. It's just a hypothetical, right? Yeah, the guy (laughs) does not live in that state. Colorado. Is married to a woman, never happened. And so, so there's this huge. That didn't matter to any of the justices. They want to make law in a particular kind of way. And so they, they just disregard normal standing requirements. It's extremely dangerous. It's considered free speech in this ruling if you don't want to engage in a commercial transaction and provide a commercial service in the real public world because you object to the sexual orientation of people who are seeking your services. Where the hell does that end? Can a checkout person at a grocery store refuse to scan and do their job when they see a transgendered couple or a gay couple? Or think about it, or an interracial couple. Can an OB-GYN doctor now refuse services to an LGBT person? Can I dream up some insane religion that says that Black people are inherently inferior and that women are inherently inferior. And on the basis of this belief that I have a First Amendment right to have, deny them commercial services. I mean, this opens up a door for a vigilante Jim Crowism that goes beyond the LGBT issue. This thing is extremely horrific and horrible decision. And it's framed around speech when in reality, the precedents were about conduct. There's nothing about her speech, right? So she wants to go off and say horrible, terrible, shitty things about LGBT people. She's free to do that. But that it's about speech is absurd. What the precedents and what the civil rights are about are about conduct, you know, like restaurants denying service in the real world marketplace to people because they're black or because they're gay or because they're transgendered or Latino, whatever, fill in the blanks. But conduct. And they frame it around speech. It's a pathetic decision. It's got huge standing issues and it it misconstrues precedent. 
another example of these people just making law the way they want to in accord with their Christian, fascist, white nationalist worldview. I really agree, Paul. I just wanted to add in a, a couple things that stood out to me. One is you talked about it being framed as, you know, violating the First Amendment's freedom of speech when right. it's really like codifying the right of bigots who are business owners to not serve gay people in certain situations. And that's not free speech. That's weaponizing religion. And it's extremely dangerous. And as you said, a slippery slope into other ominous discrimination. I think that it's really heavy to think about discrimination against LGBTQ people as a violation of free speech. People need to just sit with that and the absolute bigotry that that is codifying. And it's worth comparing that the plaintiff in this case didn't want to just express her bigotry. Today, you can go and stand on a corner and say the most vile shit against gay people. Right, she can you do can that. even do it on the House floor. You can do that. But yep. this case was saying that she needed to express her bigotry in her business. She needed to have her commercial enterprise be a vehicle for her Christian fascism. And she wanted to be able to discriminate at work. And the court said, thumbs up. Now, folks have said that there's limits and this is a narrow question and all this thing, but I couldn't find, maybe you could, where the limiting principle is. Where are the boundaries that state that this will limit itself to only discrimination against gay folks or as awful as that is, and don't twist my words, that's terrible in its own right, exactly. or only refusal for weddings. I think that this could, as Maura Dunnigan has pointed out, that, quote, the case threatens to unravel a whole matrix of anti-discrimination laws governing public accommodations, redefining public-facing commercial enterprises as speech and discrimination as personal expression, end quote. And I think your point about anybody saying, oh, I'm a sandwich artist, oh, Oh, I'm an ice cream artist. Oh, I'm a burger flipping artist. Anybody can be an artist. <laughs> and therefore, it's their expression. And my religion is against it. It's really, really yeah. scary how far this can go. And I think that we're going to see a lot of cases. This has the potential to be as big in the history textbooks of this period, I think, as the affirmative action decision. It should not be underestimated. It's really wide open. And you're absolutely right. It has no limiting principle. You know, when the Supreme Court, as if and when it goes along with the Christian fascist assault on Mifepristone, the medical abortion pill next year, if they do that, they'll do it in connection with the archaic Comstock Act. They'll limit it as anti-obscenity measure, as absurd as that is. They won't be giving a green light to any whack job anywhere to take down any drug they want to, right? It'll be specific in that regard. There's no specific limiting thing going on here. It's wide open. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. And I just think that people really need to, as I said before, sit with, but not only sit with, you know, <laughs> confront and then act accordingly with the notion that bigots, Christian fascists are being given more dignity, more respect, more value than oh, our LGBTQ siblings. It's just them. horrific. And not to leap ahead too far, but people should be in the streets about this instead of just going, oh, uh, well, gee, this will help the Democrats in 2024. I definitely want to go there. But before we go there, right. I want to talk about a couple more things. One, I want to talk about Biden v. Nebraska. Another decision that came out on Friday, June 30th, another 6-3 decision. 
This one from Chief Justice John Roberts. In the Brest case, the court said the Secretary of Education lacked the authority under the HEROES Act to rewrite the statute to the extent of canceling $430 billion of student loan principles. Oh, I love this decision. And here again, we have standing issues. It's just completely- And by love, he means hates. (laughs) That's right. And in a dark comedy kind of way. There's just ridiculous standing issues in this particular case. Who, who is the harmed person in this? It's an agency called Mojica that apparently is what a private public collaboration. It's a body that made money off of servicing student debt payments in the state of Missouri. The attorney general of Missouri decided that they were the aggrieved partner and that they had standing to be against this very modest, just ten to twenty thousand dollar student debt relief program. Also, the suspension of student debt payments under the COVID national emergency. The HERO Act is very clear. The Department of Education does have definite power in cases of national emergency to do exactly what it is. It's just a case of the court saying, hey, we're the judicial branch and we are God. And no, the executive branch can't do what statutory power says they can absolutely do. The Roberts decision is just hilarious. He actually likened the COVID-19 student debt relief under Trump and then under Biden to the French Revolution. He actually likened it to like guillotine, you know, like the terror, you know, this is like Robespierre and the nobility. In an assault on democracy, he said, you know, it's the same relationship to democracy that the French Revolution had to the rights of the nobility. I mean, first of all, that's kind of funny right there. The feudal nobility is somehow uh, identified with democracy. But he uses this, I love this, he cited something that he invented in 20, was it 15, called the Major Questions Doctrine. The courts have the right to negate statute and statutory power in cases of questions of vast economic or political significance. What does that mean? It means that the Supreme Court is God. If the government does anything that impinges upon the power of the capitalist class, that impinges upon the capitalist mode of production, The major questions doctrine says that the courts have the right to cancel their decisions. It's a hilarious decision. I love it, but I hate it because it's just so preposterous. And what it's going to mean for people is really heavy. You know, yes, it was a modest thing, but it actually did have an impact. One thing that also stuck to me is they go on and they say, we're textualists. We're directly reading the Constitution. That's what we're using. But when the text doesn't lead them to a policy decision they want, they just throw it out and make up what they want. And let's not forget the fascist content of the hatred of higher education and people Mm -hmm. going to college and the notion that they're all just a bunch of lazy bums sliding through life on their asses, getting philosophy and English and history degrees that we can no longer pay for. And they just want to have a free ride and all this nonsense. I remember you've talked to Jason Stanley before, and he has one of his key narratives of the fascist ideology is this notion that we're the hardworking people. We're the real Americans. We work hard. And all these lazy bums who just want to get off. I'm sorry. This is a lot of this is working class people trying to access the educational certificate that's required for any kind of minimal level of upward mobility and security in this society. And guess what? They can't afford it because they weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And freaking tuition has skyrocketed to a preposterous degree in higher education, which, you know, is a real problem in and of itself. No, I think it's really important that you were putting it in the context of where they're going and what the larger fascist project that this is a part of. I think that's very helpful. And I did also want to say, you know, 
to connect to what you were saying about putting the Supreme Court above, above all else into being the gods, the deciders, the fact of the matter, they just threw out an authority that was granted by Congress to the Biden administration. It didn't matter. And I think that there's some points on this and the unaccountability of the Supreme Court, a lawless court that we're gotten into in last week's episode. Folks should, should check it out. Yeah, we're the gods. And so I remember the old Karl Rove quote, you know, you, you all sit around and try and understand history, what we're doing, and we just make it. People have pointed to Merrill v. Milligan and Morby Harper. Merrill v. Milligan was a voting rights case that involved Alabama and would potentially disenfranchise Black voters. Morby Harper, the case of the total Looney Tunes independent legislator theory, that both of those did not go forward, show that this court, quote unquote, is showing new caution. How should we understand this? So I didn't even know that Merrill v. Milligan thing was up. And so I only found out about it after the fact. Roberts did shoot down a really egregious redistricting program. What Alabama had done, they had put every goddamn black voter in the state in one district so that there would only be one black congressperson in seven congressional districts in the state. This is a you know a standard, long-standing gerrymandering practice all across the red state of America. And this was really egregious. I suspect Roberts looked at that and said, this is just a bridge too far. The more of Harper, I knew that was up. And I did not expect it to pass through, particularly after looking months ago at some of the oral arguments about it. Just so listeners know, this thing is insane. The independent state legislature theory says that state legislatures would be free to supervise and manage federal elections within their state jurisdictions any way they want. Just an absolute carte blanche to gerrymander how they want, to voter suppress how they want, carried to its ultimate logical insane conclusion it would have said that it's constitutional for states to defy the popular majority vote in presidential elections and send, guess what, alternate elector slates to Congress for certification in the 2024 and all future presidential elections. They would be free to do that if their popular majorities in their states made the mistake of voting for a Democrat and not voting for a fascist like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. This is just a bridge too far. It would have just too completely ripped off the democratic facade of American bourgeois so-called democracy. It's just laughably evident what a dictatorship we really are beneath all our pretense. I think that the calculation was this court seems to be happy right now to win victories on culture war issues, on religious freedom, on advancing patriarchy, on advancing white supremacy. They don't seem to be on board yet with the full-on fascist end of what little remains of democracy. Did not get fully behind Trump's war on the 2020 election. They're not stopping Jack Smith and the DOJ from investigating Trump on election obstruction, on January 6th coup attempt, or on the documents stuff. I think there's a lot of calculations going on here, all sort of at one and the same time about this, this stuff's a bridge too far. But also that their court is already a big fucking huge freaking legitimacy problem already because of the crap they're doing on race and gender and gay rights. But also because these corruption scams that are just spilling out over the last few weeks, maybe it's more than the last few weeks, all these billionaire trips and all these 
hanging out with right-wing big money people. Alito, it's just egregious. Clarence Thomas, it's just egregious. There's even issues with Roberts and this big money job that his spouse got after he became the chief justice. They have a long game sense that we don't need to go that far. We don't need to make our illegitimacy even yet more evident and outrage people against this institution, which has very low popularity right now. It's down to like approval in the 30s somewhere in the Supreme Court. And I don't think they really need this independent state legislature theory. They don't need this extreme over-the-top gerrymandering program in Alabama to win, to potentially get full triple branch Republic fascist control of the federal government in 2025. I think that they, they think the electoral college is in place for them to do that. They think the absurdly malapportioned and powerful U.S. Senate works to their advantage. They think the lineup in the 2024 uh, Senate elections look very good for them and they're right to think that. There's a bunch of gerrymandering and voter suppression already in place, not before them in red state America to further their agenda. And they've got the corpse, so they don't even shit to, to get what they want. So this is them... Uh, playing the long game and being smart and realizing that they don't need everything right now. I do also want to point out that three, three justices on the Supreme Court gave that theory a thumbs up. That's Thomas, that's Alito, that's Gorsuch. I mean, we should not feel good about that in the least. You know, there was some analysis that Jeff Charlotte put out. He put it out on Twitter. I just want to share with listeners an excerpt of it. This is a tweet from Jeff. It was a thread that he did. I cut out a a part of it. You can see Jeff's Twitter at Jeff Charlotte for more. Quote, when the SCOTUS said no to the quote unquote independent legislator coup attempt, that's what it was. The usual quote unquote, the center holds crowd spoke again of quote unquote, return to normality. Then court kills affirmative action, debt relief, and slams LGBTQ plus human rights. Friends, fuck your center. The new American fascist movement to which the court knowingly, I'm excerpting, or naively makes itself accessory, achieves its goals through a mix of lawfare, threat, myth, and actual violence. Institutional and physical violence go hand in hand. Queer bashing just got a vote of confidence from the court. It will increase. White supremacism, violence will increase on campuses, even as BIPOC presence falls. The quote unquote responsible point of view is that such quote unquote individual acts of violence are nothing to do with judges and legislators who systematically create circumstances that all but guarantee them. Some actually believe this. I suspect the justices do. Others wink and relish the hate they fan. The difference isn't terribly important to the queer kid beaten up the Black woman sexually assaulted on a campus where law supports those who see her as less than. Naive and knowing what the Germans called, quote unquote, stirrup holders. And open brutes now march arm in arm. And yet we hear pundits now saying SCOTUS faces a problem of, quote unquote, legitimacy, a, quote unquote, perception problem. Thus, those who cling to a center that doesn't exist imagine fascism will be defeated as if justices aren't in for life, as if they haven't shown they don't give a damn. Liberal pundits who haven't yet admitted to themselves the scale of anti-democracy forces say the court, quote unquote, is moving us back 50 years. It's a hell of a lot worse than that. It's not going backwards and it's not, quote unquote, conservative. It's openly accelerating toward full fascism. And that's the end of Jeff Charlotte's thread. Check it out. I think there's a lot of truth in there. I do disagree a little bit with him on who he sees as 
fully fascist on the court and who he sees as as not. And that's not essential. And I do think that there actually is value in people seeing the court as illegitimate. I think that that's actually an opportunity and something I want to get into with Paul in a minute. But I did want to share it because I do think that it is an important to both acknowledge what fucking center are you talking about, the fascist threat in the way that these different forces work together to really rain hell on people and that this is all going for the full elimination of civil rights and democratic rights in this country. So I wanted to talk briefly about Biden and the Democrats' response to these gut-wrenching SCOTUS decisions. Both Biden and Harris gave remarks about the affirmative action decision, while Biden at least had the, I guess, courage to say that discrimination still exists in this country, it's glaring that neither statement made any mention of the actual history that affirmative action aims to overcome, of mass kidnapping and enslavement, of segregation and inequality, with the treatment of Black people as literal property enshrined into law, including by the Supreme Court, with the active participation by the most prestigious institutions of higher learning. Instead, from the champions of diversity, We hear the continued lionization of the literal slave owners who wrote the U.S. Constitution and received suggestions from the president to admissions office to use other metrics to work around this ruling. In his statement, he literally tells colleges, you can use individual stories of racial discriminations, but more broadly, they should replace racial affirmative action with an increase in focus on poverty-based metrics, as though these address the same issues. This is the definition of accommodation, but it's also worse than that. Consistent with their reactions to the other rulings, consistent with Biden's recent comment that because he's Catholic, quote, he's never been big on abortion, end quote, we continue to see the Democratic Party leadership monopolize opposition to fascism and then openly undermine the most important fronts in this war. At no point in any of his comments does he address the fascist nature of this Supreme Court. And when asked point blank whether the court has, quote, thrown into question its own legitimacy, end quote, whether it's a, quote unquote, rogue court, Well, he dismisses the notion, merely saying that it's not a normal court. It's important to remember that this president commissioned a panel of prestigious legal experts to look into the potential for Supreme Court reform, precisely because of what we are seeing today, and loaded it with just enough conservatives to make sure this esteemed ivy-drenched body came back with a full-throated, I don't know. I want to end over <laughs> back to Paul. What are your thoughts? Boy, there's a lot there. Hey, uh, by the way, Jeff Charlotte is a friend of the show, and he's really pretty cool. And he says the F word all the time, which the Biden and the Kamala Harris's and the mainstream Democrats uh, just can't bring themselves around to do. And that's exactly what we're dealing with. You know, one of the key aspects of fascism is this militant dedication to the restoration of traditional social hierarchy and the tearing up of the old previously normative constitutional rule of law. And that's what we're seeing. With these decisions, uh, Biden seems to be suggesting that they're going to have workarounds. Kind of reminds me of how liberals would say, well, the Dobbs decision really doesn't mean that much. You know, we'll have the abortion bill, you know, which is slated to be potentially eliminated. But I've been hearing liberals say, well, we're still going to have diversity anyway. The corporate culture is too attached to it. I'm sorry. The highest offices in the state, the godlike Supreme Court, are saying you can't pursue these. You know, Joe freaking Biden, I will never forget between the election And the certification in this period when we were waiting for the Proud Boys to go into the streets twice before January 6th in mass. And, you know, and Trump already absurdly denying the election. And Joe Biden had this big public speech in which he said, you know, 
democracy takes a little patience every once in a while, but it always pays off. And he said, because America and its great democracy has been the envy of the world for 240 years. This is what he said. What a raised middle finger to Frederick Douglass and the slaves of this country. Just be patient and just freaking hang on. There's different levels at which you can talk about the court as illegitimate. If you just mean illegitimate because Alito and Thomas are taking money from billionaires, well, I mean, that's right. It's illegitimate. I think about it. I think we think about it in a much deeper sense than that. This Constitution's particular power is part of an 18th century slave owner's constitution constructed by slave owners, obviously, merchant capitalists, landed gentry, and publicists for whom democracy was completely the ultimate nightmare. And they constructed a system that includes, among other things, an undemocratically elected presidency through the Electoral College and an absurdly malapportioned and very powerful upper chamber of Congress called the U.S. Senate, where every state has two representatives, regardless of how many people are in the state. I mean, if California had the same population to senator ratio as Montana or Wyoming, it would have like 130 senators, something like that. And those are the two bodies that together that appoint this court in the first place. It's an unelected court and it's appointed for life. So it's really illegitimate in that deep sense. The Democrats, as usual, are complicit in this horrific right-wing policy. It's intimately related to not really being able to acknowledge that it's fascism. If you want to call it Christian white nationalism, whatever, not acknowledging it as part of keeping people sitting on their asses. So they never call people into the streets and the public squares. And the streets and the public squares have been completely surrendered to the right wing, it seems to me, since the end of the George Floyd rebellion, or perhaps after Kenosha. Even any elementary, real serious commitment to bourgeois democracy would be calling for masses of people in the streets. And instead, they exploit these horrible things and point everybody to what? what? Voting. The killing confines of that great coffin of class consciousness, as the historian Alan Dolly once called it, the American voting booth. And that's the whole definition of politics, regardless of the institutional minority rule institutional structure of American politics, which is very favorable to the right, which is why they don't really need the independent state legislature theory or the Alabama thing to prevail in 2025. And by the way, you're absolutely right. This six to three is nothing to feel happy about in the uh, Morphy-Harper case. My God, the three Supreme Court justices, three of them went with the independent state legislature theory, which is basically fake electors, if we want in in Mississippi. Or Iowa. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, in the context of what you're saying, the constant prettifying by the media. New York Times headlines like affirmative action is dead. Campus diversity doesn't have to be. Or six ways you can still cancel your federal student loan debt, um, which lists as one of those ways death. Our friends, our friends and Sarge Taylor had tweeted, you know, about one of these things, quote, liberal addiction to downplaying and immediately adjusting to the latest fascist sledgehammer. How right. about straight up calling out and fighting this blatant white supremacy? They can't stop. They really can't really stop abortion because we have the abortion bill. But also, like, we're going to find the, the nearest workaround immediately accommodating, not saying affirmative action is dead. Every I heard somebody say should get in the streets. Every person I heard some, who hasn't benefited should get in the streets. None of that. It's I like heard some liberals say that, well, this will be a boon for HCBUs. They're going to get a lot more people. So that's going to fix so it. So thumbs up Ow. to segregation. Way to go. You know, like that's basically what that's saying. 
You know, I did want to talk a little bit more about legitimacy as we close out our conversation. You provided some really important insight into that already. You know, I did want to note that the Congressional Black Caucus said that the court has thrown into question its own legitimacy. And that is significant. This rampant fascist, I hate the word extremism. I wish I could think of a good replacement word. Severity, I guess, on the court does contain within it potential for big problems for the court. And to be honest, the larger system in which this court sits, the court provides legitimacy to a lot of oppression, in my opinion, that we see in this society and to the violence that this system wields. I think it is worth thinking about what happens when legitimacy starts to erode or even evaporate. And is is there something positive there that could be turned? I mean, the fascist remaking of the court and its work to turn back time, not just yeah. of a few decades, but of centuries or more is really ripping things apart. You know, you pointed to the, the legitimacy numbers. That is heavy. I think that people are asking big questions about all of this. To me, you know, we need to be asking bigger questions about the nature of the United States and what right. kind of society we want to live in and what world we want our children to inherit. But I just wanted your, there were any other thoughts on legitimacy and potential? Well, you know, I think one of the things that the right has done, and it's an explicit project, is to make government so illegitimate that people just turn off completely to politics altogether. And they just turn away from it. And they turn away from the notion of, or so give true. up the idea of a public power that could work for the people, for the broad majority of the people, for the working class. And so we give up on the notion of taking public power and wielding it in a very different way. I'm not opposed to judicial review on principle. I think the kind of socialist society I'd like to live in would probably retain the, uh, an institution of a particular kind of high court that would keep a watch on policies that violate fundamental principles. But it would be a very, very different kind of court, just like in a social society, I'd like to see the police would be in an entirely different fashion. Than they were. The whole apparatus of the state would function differently. But getting there, getting to that kind of court, getting to that kind of state, requires a revolutionary, radical mobilization of millions in the streets that the Democrats will just never, never, never get behind. They will always point everybody to the voting booths as if this is this great form of popular sovereignty, while at the same time, like here recently in Chicago, after the more public appearance and slipping into the fundraiser, where the big money donors promise the millions and millions of dollars to keep them on board. Don't rock the boat. Biden said it very well in 2019 to elite donors of Manhattan. If you elect me, nothing fundamentally will change. He said this is you know, an explicit statement. You know, Certain candor is allowed in discussions with donors, like where Biden actually sort of said to elite donors, I'm, he says, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say something. You know, what's going on with the MAGA Republicans is kind of a little bit like semi-fascist. <laughs> yeah. And then he stepped back from it. So the project of delegitimizing government altogether is a longtime right-wing project. It's meant to demoralize us, stand us down. The right-wing pretends to be anti-government. It says it's for the free market and against the big government. It's against the left hand of the state, to use the language of the late French sociologist Pierre Boudou. It's against any parts of government that do anything decent, therefore that are inclusive or for poor people, or for the working class. But it's not against big government that incarcerates and felony marks and tortures and invades and distributes wealth and power. It's all very disingenuous and a very sick kind of game that they play. 
Yeah, I do think it's helpful to see the different ways that people understand and the different forces and their ability to understand and then wield the concept of legitimacy and the different directions that that can go. And I think that for people that are concerned, rightly so concerned with the threat of fascism, reseizing the White House, consolidating power, there is a fight for the future afoot. It would be a very good thing in this moment if instead of people saying, oh, this is awful, there's nothing we can do, or oh, this is awful, we just got to vote harder. If people actually say, you know what, this is absolutely illegitimate. It is illegitimate to have overt white supremacy. It is illegitimate to elevate and weaponize religious bigotry against LGBTQ people. It is illegitimate for whole agencies to be undermined. Oh, like the EPA? Yeah. So that there can be further decimation of the environment. It is illegitimate. And we're going to be in the streets and we're going to call that out and we're going to say enough. And I think that that actually would be a positive contribution at a time when when the streets and public discourse have been completely surrendered to those who see women, LGBTQ people, immigrants, Black folks, all as subhuman. And I think that it's past time and we have to turn this around. I do want to give you a moment if there was anything that we didn't talk about, anything that we didn't mention that you want to point listeners to? Uh, Well, you just mentioned something that I think deserves some emphasis. There were big anti-EPA decision in this last court session. It just absurdly ruled that the EPA has no authority under the Clean Water Act in wetlands. The EPA is a big target of the right. And they had a ruling in the last session that that, forbade the EPA from regulating uh, carbon emissions in factories or something like that. Just completely nuts. This ecocidal stuff should not be underestimated. There is no racial justice. There's no no social equality. There's no democracy. There's no love. There's no anything on a dead planet. And we are speeding ahead towards this just lurks underneath behind the headlines is like the biggest issue of our or any time, and it's inherently uh, rooted in the operations of the capitalist system, in my opinion. Before we say goodbye, I did want to point out that Bolsonaro has been barred from running for office until 2030, and how different that is from Trump, who is front runner. So when Trump is in, so when Bolsonaro deports all the communists and Marxists from Brazil, so then Trump's going to block them from coming into the United States. So well, no, Bolsonaro can't run. I mean, that's the, that's the difference. No, I know. But after 2030, he can. Yeah. yeah. And because Trump will be president for life. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really frightening. You know, and I want to return to something that you talked about, the Democrats and, and Biden's response. And Trump at his rally last night, it's just like normal that he is front runner still. He said at his rally on Biden, quote, this is a sick nest of people that need to be cleaned out and cleaned out immediately, end quote. I don't know about you, Paul, but this is eliminationist language. This is, it's the language of extermination. If it doesn't sound like the Third Reich, I don't know what it sounds like. What do you think? Uh, Nests, that's animalization. That's dehumanization. This is a nest of vipers. This is a nest of snakes. This is how Hitler talked about Jews and talked about liberals and talked about cities polyglot cities that were just big dens of uh, inequity and sinfulness and radicalism and just scary. That's another key theme in uh, in Jason Stanley's stuff, this, this fear of these urban nests. It's horrific. I'll reiterate what I said at the beginning. This guy said he's going to ground up communists, Marxists, and socialists and deport them from the country. That actually happened in this country. There's a book out, American Midnight, about when this happened to some degree. 
during and after World War One. There's real historical precedent. And, and Trump's mentor was Roy Kahn when he was coming up in New York, who was Joe McCarthy's personal attorney or Senate attorney, a close ally of the McCarthyite Red Scare. Yeah. And let's be clear, as much as Paul and I laugh about Biden being called a socialist Marxist, about any of the Democrats being called communists or socialists and how that is so far from true, they are being deemed enemies. Oh, yeah. Fascism does that. They are being deemed enemies and they are not going to stop this nightmare, as we say in our mission statement. The Democratic Party will consistently pull to try to work with, conciliate with and collaborate with them. And there can be no reconciliation with fascism except on the terms of the fascists. And fascism must be. And and the rules, the rules are that the Republicans get to absurdly call the Democrats socialists and Marxists and communists and the Democrats hold back except for tiny exceptions from accurate calling the Republicans now a fascist party. And it's interesting that the Democrats don't redress the mischaracterization of them as socialists, right? It's, it's interesting that they just kind of let that lay there. I rarely hear them say that. I wrote a piece about that months ago, and it's intriguing to me. If they were to engage in a full-throated defense of themselves against the charges of being socialist, they'd have to admit how capitalist they are. And they just won't do that. I want to thank you so much, Paul, for spending the past hour or so chatting with me. I always learn a lot, and I know that our listeners do as well. And again, I want to encourage folks to check out Paul's Substack. It's linked in the show notes. And don't just check it out. Subscribe. Support our good pal, Paul, and his continued writing, research, and all that good stuff. And I want you to have a great rest of your, your day, Paul. Thanks for listening to Refuse Fascism. We want to hear from you. Share thoughts, questions, ideas for topics or guests. Lend a skill. Tweet me at Sambi Goldman. Drop me a line at Samantha Goldman at RefuseFascism.org. To connect on Mastodon or to leave us voicemail, check out the show notes. Want to support the show? It's simple. The best way to do it is to show us love by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And of course, follow, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Become a patron to support our pod and content creation to help people understand and act to stop the fascist threat. Thanks to those who signed up last week. For as little as $2 a month, you can help make a difference in producing and promoting this independent weekly show. Sign up at $5 or more a month and you'll get an invite for a live virtual Q&A happening later this month. You don't want to miss it, so sign up give today at patreon.com slash refuse fascism or by visiting refusefascism.org and hitting that donate button. Thanks to Richie Marini, Lena Thorne, and Mark Tinkleman for helping produce this episode. Thanks to incredible volunteers, we have transcripts available for each show. So be sure to visit refusefascism.org and sign up to get them in your inbox. We'll be off next Sunday, July 9th, but we will be back with a packed episode on July 16th. Until then, in the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America.